I'm turning 40 this week. If you're listening to this later, it's August 20th, 2018. And 40 is one of those magical life hurdles that you think about a lot when you're 12 or when you're when you're 20, when you're 25. And as you get older, you stop thinking as much about that 40-year-old hurdle until you, you get closer to 40. And then when you get 38, you kind of think, oh, okay, well, I've got a couple of years. And then when you get 39, and the year you, that you're going to turn 40, you think, oh, my gosh, I'm turning 40. And then the month that you turn 40, you think, oh, my gosh, I'm really going to turn 40. And then now here I am this week. I'm going to turn 40. And this podcast for me is sort of uh, emblematic of that. You see, when I was 12, I had my life planned out. I was, I was going to be the catcher for the Chicago Cubs uh, starting when I was 21. And uh, because of my amazing baseball skills and my popularity at Wrigley Field, I was going to, going to easily waltz into uh, being the, the senator from Illinois when I was 38. On my way to becoming president when I was 44, I had this all planned out when I was 12. I, have, I still have the notebook. And it was a great plan, but it, did, it didn't work out. So here I am turning 40, living in Columbia, South Carolina. And that's okay, and I'm very excited about where I am now in my family and how my career has turned out. And I'm not the catcher for the Chicago Cubs, but I get to watch them on my iPad, and I get to experience that. But I also get to experience a type of life that I didn't even think about as a kid, and this ability to do things like podcast and talk to people across the country who have uh, similar but also different viewpoints than I do is so fascinating so that's what I want the show to, to really start becoming as I become who I am still so even though I, I'm not a big fan of demythologizing uh, let's re-mythologize thinking religion and we're going to talk about that on the show my guest t- uh, today is uh, the Reverend Lauren Larkin she's got a fantastic voice uh, when it comes to public theology she's very good at explaining complicated uh, and and very uh, uh, specific terms, whether it's German uh, theology or whether it's uh, teaching eighth graders. So we're going to have a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I do. As always, go to thinkingreligion.net if you want to see our show notes and if you want to subscribe, and I hope you do. Here's to turning 40. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read you a passage. And, okay. and we're going we're gonna to respond in real time. Ready? Okay. You're going to tell me what you think. I'll try. I'm not that opinionated. No, not you. Of course. <laughs> all right. Because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals and among all the wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, flip the page. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree about which I commanded to you that you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of, your, uh, because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, you are dust. 
to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of the living, and the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. All right, what, what's your immediate takeaway? Um, I'm actually surprised that you were able to locate my life verses. <laughs> yeah, well, I told you. I told That's you amazing. It would, uh, be a surprise. I've never had anyone just go straight to all the scripture I use for my life verses. Um, funny, funny thing is, is that I was just teaching my eighth graders about Genesis one, two, and three, and the the curses are absolutely fascinating to me because. Well, actually, there's only like one part that is technically cursed, but I guess the whole thing sort of gets lumped in that the whatever's happening in these verses isn't good. Um, and it's the opposite of what should have been um, sort of going on in creation. Uh, but the the uh, enmity that is sort of struck between all the different relationships, um, creation and humanity between um partnerships between friendships between human humans and humans between god and humans everything sort of um is kind of seems like it's been twisted and um bent out of out of shape um but the you know the proto euangelion you know the initial gospel promise is embedded in the midst of this um with the discussion with the with the serpent um you know i the, one of her offspring is going to bruise your head and you're going to strike his heel you're not gonna you know at the end of the day you're not going to win this at the end of the day there's still a promise that sort of trumps everything that's going on in these verses um i have a lot of i have too many thoughts about this passage i have a lot of thoughts about this well, yeah, I mean, because, uh, yeah, keep them coming. We, we discussed this in our Sunday school and especially with our uh, in our youth group and, and with our especially uh, female uh, members of the youth group. They were they were sort of, um, I, I guess, drawn into this because oftentimes and especially in youth Sunday school and, and, you know, I mean, teaching middle schoolers, you don't necessarily go, you know, verse by verse, word by word of, of something like you know, the, the Genesis narrative of, or narratives of creation. And when you do, it makes you kind of stop and think and, and look at these passages in, in a way that you might not when you just kind of do the generic, oh, well, Adam and Eve were in the garden and God kicked them out because they were bad and they ate the apple. But when you kind of go through this verse by verse, you, you get a different perspective on it, I think. Yes. Like, for instance, um, I, you know, personally invested in the whole childbearing statement. <laughs> right, um, yeah. And and I I've been in circles where um, someone will say, well, it's um, epidurals uh, is Jesus's way of reversing that part of you know Genesis three, <laughs> and I'm always like, oh my god, that's not really what's going on there. Luther, I think, actually does a really good job translating this portion of uh, of Genesis three. He sort of lumps in the whole concept of fertility and bringing life into the world it's not sometimes we tend to isolate it just to that moment of the throes of transition where you know she's in immense amount of pain or whatever media version we have we have about uh, understanding about labor and delivery which by the way is not the proper understanding of labor and delivery <laughs> um we're, we're controlled by it in fact it's actually a fascinating study if you want to get into it um but luther sort of broadens that term i will increase your pain in childbearing meaning to sort of encapsulate all the fear from beginning to end and that it's the whole entire event of 
the woman in that moment is going to be fraught with fear and, and toil and, um, and, and pain. And so, you know, the, the kind of tumultuousness. Yes. So what Luther does is he broadens the term. It's not just the childbearing moment that, you know, that, that, that frightful, fateful moment where everyone's frantic and running about the hospital. Right. Or or the home or the pool or whatever it is. Um, It's, it's, he broadens it out to sort of incorporate um, the, the very beginnings of fertility. So the hmm. conception that Luther offers is that the whole darn thing is going to be difficult and it's going to be fraught with fear and trembling. Um, it's going to be scary. You're not going to know if it's going to, to stick. So the whole entire event of bringing a child into the world, and then I would even probably extend it further out and say even sustaining that child um, in the world. It's the same work that it's not, it's not very different from the, the, the toiling that the um, man is going to do against the, you know, uh, earth that will be difficult to, you know, gain fruit from. Um, it's the, they're, they're, they're fighting the same battle in different sort of like back to back looking at it from different perspectives. Um, it's going to be a battle to bring humanity into the world. It's going to be a battle to kind of sustain humanity in this world. That's um, really interesting. So that's sort of where um, I sort of go with it in that um, it's it's um, way bigger than just like the, oh, my water broke. Now's the time to freak out. This is the curse taking effect. No, no, right. no. It's much bigger than that. It, it extends backwards and it extends forward. And it's going to consistently throughout human history. Um, it, it, what, what happens, I don't know. Um, I've been, I've been talking about how, um, in my world religions class, I talk about how, you know, we have, uh, adapted the Jewish scriptures into our meta narrative of Christ and how that feeds into it. So sometimes we look at, you know, um, Genesis one, two, and three, and we kind of Jesus juke it, right? So what would be the perspective of, um, uh, of Genesis three from, you know, a, a, a rabbi or a Jewish s- scholar? Um, I don't know. I w- actually, these are conversations that I would love to have, but that's my understanding of the, the childbearing is that um, taking kind of Luther's lead on it, it's much bigger than just that moment of the birth of a child. It's actually encompassing the whole entire thing. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. Uh, so uh, my wife, my partner is, is actually, uh, we're actually about 16 weeks pregnant. Um, Ooh. so yeah, so we're expecting another little one in, in February. Um, Yay! I know, I know we're so excited, but our, our son who's, uh, almost three now, he, he had a, a incredibly difficult, uh, birthing experience and it, it was so opposite of the whole pregnancy because everything, you know, we, we hit all the numbers and everything was perfect and, he arrived right at 40 weeks and, you know, it was sort of a, Oh, well, this is going to be great. And, you know, we're going to have the baby within six hours, you know, that type of stuff. And, you know, he ends up emergency C-section and, you know, Mm -hmm. he's got paddles on him and he's blue and, you know, we're like, Oh my gosh, is he going to make it? And, you know, mom's not doing well. Um, So it went from zero to 60 very quickly there. So uh, like you were saying, uh, when, when I hear this passage and I think about the pains of childbirth, as we call it, you know, for, as a, as a man, you know, like that's the, the reflection I have, because that was definitely one of the scariest moments of my life, let alone the whole existential crisis of bringing a, a you know, another human <laughs> to this world. Um, yeah. And the whole process. But when, when of our youth, 
uh, in Sunday school when we were going over this, uh, she said, uh, um, wait, so it, she said, in, in my mind, it, when, I, when I hear this, it's almost as if Eve didn't realize, wait, I, I'm going to have to give birth to what? <laughs> How does yeah. this work? <laughs> right. And she was like, you know, it, it, I imagine her kind of as a teenager and, and you know, this, this uh, female was 15, 16 years old. And she was like, it, it would be like me getting pregnant and saying, wait, what? I, I, I can't do this. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what I'm going to do what now with, with this new human? That's uh, no, no, you, you made us out of clay. Like that's let, let's get back to that model. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So where's this baby coming from? <laughs> yeah. So her question was, what was this part of the original creation? You know, like what if, you know, we were all vegetarians and God made skins for Adam and Eve. Was childbearing part of that, you know, sort of uh, divine uh, plan? Or it was that something that is a result of, you know, basically getting kicked out of the garden for eating from one of the the two sacred trees. Um, are you just throwing that question out into the universe, so for it to grow and become its own big adult question, uh -huh. or are you actually, yeah, actually I, asking me? Yeah, I'd love to hear your, your okay. thought because I had to sit back and think for a minute, and I said, okay, well, you know, let me uh, let me process this, and uh, I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> was death part of the original, you know, design for for humans uh, or for Adam and Eve? I guess you should, you would say. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I tend to think um, being a more uh, bodily oriented Christian, I do tend to think that sex was part of the garden and part of the intention of um, uh, uh, partnering up with someone that you are attracted to and you love and you desire and you want. I think all those things are very, very good. That mm -hmm. leads me to say that in certain circumstances, thus child would, you know, children would come into um, existence. Now I'm trying to strike a non, um, are you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm trying to strike a, um, not necessarily a very, um, I'm trying to be careful about sounding too heter heteronormative. Right. Um, and so, but the reality of um, being uh, that the, the children coming out of um, heterosexual coupling, um, not that they make the best parents. Um, so I'm cautious of my language here, but that, that I do think that children were um, uh, been part of that garden. I kind of ascribe to, um, I don't know where I land in terms of was death part of the original plan of paradise of the garden. I'm not sure about that, but I mm -hmm. do lean heavily in the direction of sort of um, the consciousness of our mortality growing as we w are forced out of the garden. And I think that that part working in fear in terms of our bringing children into the world um, and how much fear is sort of wrapped around that whole entire event. Am I going to, you know, lose this person who is laboring to bring this life? Am I going to lose this life that I am laboring to bring into the world? You know, like all the fear that sort of surrounds this whole entire event is the awareness of mortality. I might die. I have to face that to bring this life into the world. This life might die in my arms, it might die inside of me. 
um, that, that, that partners may be lost, that, you know, potential offspring miscarriages happen. Um, and I'm getting kind of macabre here and I do apologize. Um, uh, but those, those things that, that, that awareness of the mortality, I think is really sort of what comes out of, you know, the quote unquote fall from the garden. Now you are not going to be raising this child that you would have had in the garden, in this safe, provided for environment where food is plenty, where all you would have to do is sort of enjoy your existence in the safety of God's presence. Now you're going to go do it and you're going to toil against the ground and you're going to fight with each other and you're going to be scared to death because you're not going to be necessarily in God's presence anymore. You're not going to have the kind of comfort, creature comforts that you would have had back in the garden. So I think that what goes on there is just an overabundance of fear weaving its way, wending its way into every aspect of human existence that it wouldn't have been there before. Now that does add into um, the idea that maybe we did die in the garden, but maybe we weren't aware of it to the point that we would have existential crises about it. Maybe it would have been a different, different experience, different approach. Um, so that's sort of where I am in terms of kind of understanding paradise, not paradise, humanity in the mix of it all. And now this, um, uh, this fear and trembling that we kind of have as we go out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of the points I, you know, I, I made to the, to the youth group. Um, Cause if you read, you know, the next verse in verse 22, uh, it says, then the Lord God said, see, uh, man has become like one of us knowing good and evil now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, so, you know, certainly there was an implication that there was some sort of mortality, uh, you know, wrapped up in being human. But at the same time, it, it was almost like they weren't completely aware of what mortality was. So when, when Eve gets, you know, named the, the mother of all the living, the implication is also she's the mother of the dead. Because if you have living, yeah. you know, there's also dead wrapped up in that. And, um, and that's what, that's a really difficult <laughs> passage. Um, and, and, uh, it is. yeah, I, I, that's, that's fascinating with Luther. D did he write that after he left the, the church? He, um, it's actually just in the Bible. Okay. Um, it's the way he translates into the, uh, like lower, I, you know, he uses peasant German to translate the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just when you translate the German at that point, he, expands it just a little bit further um it's somewhere it's some someone recently was actually poking around that very post on my blog i thought wow that's someone's someone's really going into my archives <laughs> um, <laughs> always fun when you see that yeah it is it's fun when you see like one visitor 30 hits and you're like wow yeah. <laughs> that person was reading everything <laughs> um but definitely it's the way that it's translated and i came across it because i when i was studying theological german for my stm i um just translated everything i could get my hands on in german and part of it was passages of uh, Ger uh luther's german bible hmm. and i just remember pausing and saying wait a second this is very different than the english rendering that we have yeah um, and then expounding on it, sort of like contemplating it. What does this mean? And it kind of blew my mind a little bit. It was like, oh, wow. Yeah. This makes way more sense than just saying the moment of birth is going to be painful. Yeah. It's, it's like makes, when you, it makes way more sense. Yeah. It's like when you first started, uh, start reading Koine Greek and, and, 
you realize, wait, there, there's a, an aorist perfect sense or, you know, there, there are different tenses than what we have in English. And it's, it's, a, yeah. it's almost a different uh, uh, way of looking at the world. And you start realizing, okay, well, when Jesus says this in Matthew, that really means this sort of ongoing thing from the past that extends into the future. It's not just, oh, this happened there. And yes, that always blows my mind. But always, I, I know, you know, undergrads and people who first start hopping into uh, religious studies, it's, it's a big eye opener. One of my favorite Koine Greek moments is in one of my favorite passages from Luke. Luke is my favorite gospel. So if you do that bracket thing, I'm hardcore <laughs> vote Luke all the way. Um, I'm a social justice person. So right. I'm like, Luke's my homeboy when it comes to social justice. Anyway, the passage where um, it's, it's where Luke pairs up the Good Samaritan and Mary and Martha to implicate like the true doers of the law, which is just radical mm-hmm. in what he does with it. Yeah. Um, but he talks about how, you know, the Mary and Martha, like, oh, don't be a Martha, be a Mary, that whole passage. Um, and what's interesting is that it says like, oh, Jesus came in and Mary sat at his feet. And it just sounds really innocent. Like she just was like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm just, gonna, I'm just sitting at his feet. But the Greek verb that's actually translated, the word, it loses so much in translation, is that she technically, what she did, she was doing something. Jesus walked in. She stopped what she was doing, got up, walked over, and placed herself at Jesus' feet. Yeah. Way different than the way it's rendered in English. Yeah. It has way more force for um, sort of a more, like, feminist reading of that passage. Like, she stopped doing. This is why Martha starts to get tweaked out. Because (laughs) Mary was like, Jesus is in the house. I'm out, Martha. (laughs) This is, um, these works aren't going to do it for me. I'm going to go sit at the feet of of, of the word. Um, and so that's essentially what she does. She stops what she's doing, walks over and sits down. Yeah. It, it's Greek, almost like a, our a Greek just, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And no, I was gonna say our Greek just has like, just this like thing that happened and it kind of has no big bearing on anything. So yeah. it's kind of funny. Yeah. It, it's like a, it's like a, a, a physical statement as well as a philosophical statement all in one. Yep. And, oh, and yeah. English just kind of, kind of massacres that because we've, you know, we're translating from the Latin, from old English, from King Jimmy and, and on and on. So well, and that, that yes. kind of takes me to my second question. So one of the things that I'm always fascinated when I read your tweets, when I read your blog, or when I listen to your, your great podcast, uh, linked down in the, sh- in the show notes, uh, is your infatuation with demythologizing the New Testament. Um, and and it, it's not, it, it's, you know, you're not, you know, blazing any trails necessarily, but no. you are, uh, or you seem to be a big proponent of that. Yeah. And I, I guess I, I come at, I come into everything from a historical critical, you know, old white male 20th century point of view, uh, admittedly, and I admit all my privilege in doing that. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to get better. But if you were talking to someone like me, who wasn't yeah. necessarily a Boltman uh, fan or, or someone who, you know, considers himself a, a post-Bardian, what is the attraction to demythol- uh, demythologizing uh, the Gospels or, or just any sacred text in general? Uh, in my opinion, it, um, okay. So, you know, huge confession, my Myers-Briggs type indicators, INTP, 
demythologizing like just jams with that p in my personality type 100 <laughs> percent. i like to keep i like to keep things not not stagnant and solidified um you know like water that sits in a glass for too long winds up accruing just a number of unhealthy things in it and i think that when we historically just always translate a certain verse just like the way that it's supposed to be maybe coming at it from different angles but when we don't sort of look at it and try to crack it out of where it's been essentially we can't allow it to take new forms we can't allow it to be a living story and that to me is probably the most um the closest I get to actually articulating why I am infatuated with demythologizing the um uh oh the I forget the way that it's that David Conkin actually says it. Yeah, I was gonna um, say David Conkin for, for people yeah. who are listening who haven't read uh what was this the, the savior, the uh I'm blanking on the The Mission of Demythologizing, his right, his uh, right. big and then the God Who Saves, God who saves. is the right. other one. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I haven't read either one of them in full and the God who saves, I've just sort of like dabbled in here and there when I'm like looking through the index for things. Um, so confession, that's online confession. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, just think, um, I, I just think it's interesting because it, it really, um, it, and I, I think Professor Congen, I think David and, uh, and sort of Twitter theology has, has really, um, elevated that conversation about demythologizing to, to a new level that I wouldn't have been familiar with uh, just from, from my kind of outside of the academy point of view. But, yeah, you know, it, yeah, it seems like a, a real kind of cohesive point where as someone who likes mythologizing things, I, I, you know, I'm kind of like, no, no. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Yeah. Honestly. Well, you need to re-mythologize <laughs> all the things. Let, let's re-mythologize <laughs> Eden and, and the Christ figure and connect that back to right. Horus and, and do all those Western canon you know, sort of meta studies, which, which I know is terrible. Um, but, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out, okay, is this a project that I, I should, a 60 year old project, I know, but something that I, I should definitely invest myself more in. So that, that was one of the, the main things I wanted to, to push you on just to, to see what I'm missing from being outside of that conversation. Well, for me, so, so for me, I sort of, um, I had to, I had to open up um, chapel service this year and I opened up with why in the world are you teenagers being forced to come to chapel every day? <laughs> and I explained that it's all about, and this really sort of gets at the heart. And I don't know if um, I'm, I don't, I don't, I, this is sort of how I take, this is how I personalize demythologizing is that it allows me to tell the story anew. Um, and it allows me to bring my, um, I'm a wordsmith, I'm a storyteller. And so demythologizing allows me to sort of move about in this realm of words and take using them as sort of like a lasso and grabbing my hearers and bringing them into the story rather than just kind of preaching at them or telling them what the text said. It's about me creating an environment for the potential of an event encounter with God. And so that's how I sort of approach it, is that it, it allows me to look at this and to understand that there's a culture, a time, and a place where all this is being said. And what does that now mean as I sort of bring this into 2018? Not bring 2018 necessarily 
into that culture and time, then there's a place for that. It's probably a little bit more historical critical, but it's, it's about me bringing this. Um, I, the, the easiest way for me to explain it to my students is a hard boiled egg. Okay. Demythologizing to me is all about removing the outer hard shell, taking off the white and getting to the yolk. Like what is that actual thing that's in there that I now can take and build out of and create a story event to create a faith event and encounter with God for my hearer. That's why I'm so drawn to it because it allows me to do the very thing that I've been doing since I was five, which is tell a good story. And so that's how I get my readers into when I'm preaching. It's why every sermon I have always has like a story introduction. Usually it's something from my life or it's something where I kind of draw them in and then I'll draw that story through my preaching and then wrap it up with a bow. But it's all about me sort of being um, a wonder woman with words, if you will. Like I have my magic you know, <laughs> wristbands and my invisible plane and I've got my lasso of truth and I'm using it. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's why I'm drawn to it. Now, I don't understand it as fully as a bunch of other people on theology Twitter do, um, but I definitely employ the techniques and I'm all about learning it. I really love it. Um, I like it too, because it does still allow, uh, it, it gets to the heart of what faith is and where faith should be located, not in doctrines, not in creeds, not in this scripture, life verse, whatever. It's supposed to be located first and foremost in God. And if you can have faith, if you can actually strip down everything and let go of everything, like all the reasons why you are a Christian, all the reasons why you have faith. I think then you're getting into the, the heart of sort of where the demythology wants to do, the project um, of demythologizing. Again, I, can't, I don't think that's the right way of phrasing it. Yeah. But anyway, but the whole, the whole aspect of demythologizing, it's in process. Um, that it, it's trying to, it's, the faith wants to go to its right location, which isn't into a doctrine or a creed or a formula, thought formula, faith formula. It wants to get, it wants to anchor back into God. Faith is like a boomerang. It goes out from its source and it anchors through the person and brings it back to its location, not to a creed. It brings it back to God. And so when you strip everything down, everything, I'm talking the big ones, like, like future hope and bodily resurrection, you strip it all down and you still can't do anything but believe in Jesus or in God. That's the point to me is Faith that just anchors in God. You can strip everything away from it and it's still anchored in God. Um, and I think that we tend to anchor ourselves in sort of the material non-God things that um, give us comfort rather than anchoring in God, uh, in God's self. Yeah, that's, Does that make sense? It, it does. <laughs> it does. I, I guess my, my only question to that, it, maybe it's, it's the branding or the marketing of that name of demythologizing um because i I think you can do the same thing with mythologies um you know and and i don't necessarily view mythology as as like a a layer that's on top of something like the karyigma or or, you know something that's on top of the christ event or however we want to we want to say that and uh, you know i'm sure that's left over from boltmann and and translating german into english and (laughs) all those Mm -hmm. uh uh, situations i i guess maybe if, if it had a if it had a name that that didn't irk me as much, that that would make sure. sense. Because what you just described is exactly what I, what I kind of personally hold as well. I, I'm in the INF, INFP, not INTP. 
so uh, you know, I totally understand the P part. Uh, but for me, it, it's almost like mythology brings in so many beautiful aspects of, of faith that we don't get to express because of the creeds and, and the doctrines and, and me being a Baptist and having that Anabaptist heritage kind of really jobs with that. Um, you know, and on the other side, me, you know, uh, studying Assyrian art and, and mythology over time, uh, you know, has informed so much of my, uh, my perspective on Christian theology. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's just a, 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 a term that I need to, I need to get over. <laughs> well, it's, you know, what this reminds me of, um, I was just thinking that, you know, it's easy to use um, one word and approach it from two different angles, right? So um, I had a student I was talking about, um, I was explaining the, the Hindu concept of liberty is always, uh, well, not, not liberation, um, Freedom is about being um, in the world in a way that it's better for the progress of all, okay? That it's better. You're making the world a better place. It's not about this kind of personal freedom. And so my student raised his hand and he said, how is, if it's for like everyone else, how is it like, how is it your liberty? How is it your freedom? And I was like, ooh, this is interesting. So you're coming at it from a Western American concept of freedom, mm-hmm. which is I get to do my things my way and the way that I want to, rather than sort of this other different perspective that would view freedom in terms of com- communality, okay, um, versus sort of the liberal individual concept of, uh, of freedom. But I wonder, too, if sometimes we throw around myth um, and we're using it with two different definitions. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. So that could be that could be what's operating a little bit. Yeah, because I mean, so much of mine is is based in that ancient Near Eastern, uh, you know, background. Studying it again from a historical critical white guy, twentieth century point of view, uh, right. you know, writing a book about Assyrian art, um, you know, and so w- when I watch things like Ancient Aliens, uh, you know, it's fun for me to to play around with that and you know in my head and, and do the thought exercise. Of, well, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of missing the point because you're taking this a little too literally, you know, the, the Anunnaki yeah. were, you know, it was, it was a myth. Um, yeah. So anyway, okay, well, that that's that's fantastic. I think that's a good jumping off point for people. And, and there'll be some links down in the show notes as well if you want to yeah. dive a little deeper into that. And definitely yeah, and there's, Go ahead. there's definitely people who explain it a lot better than I do. Um, uh, I feel like I'm just starting to wrap my head around it. And I'm also just starting to put it into my own words. Yeah, um, and I've been noticing that on Twitter. And that's that's why I wanted to ask you, because it seems like you're, you're kind of on fire for the Lord with, with that. So I was wondering what the impetus was there. So that's, that's I haven't, good. It's been forever since someone described me as on fire for the Lord. <laughs> I usually think that people are usually assuming that I'm just off in the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> like, Lauren's lost faith. She's... <laughs> A heretic, and we don't know what she's saying anymore. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> so thank you. We're thank all you. heretics on, on Twitter. It's that, it's that for I love uh, it. Jim West. I mean, you know, he's. he's <laughs> I told my students today. I was, you know, again, I'm teaching them through Hinduism. And I was talking about heresy, and I was like, "This is a word that Christians love using. Um, it's it's actually when it's defined, it's actually you know like predominantly Christian usage. Yeah, um, exactly. So like we love throwing around heretic, and I said in this class you are free to play around with whatever heresies you want to play with because you only get good theology if you're willing to go through heresy to get there. Exactly. So, That's what Constantine <laughs> said, right? Lock them all up in yeah. Nicaea and make them figure it out.
All right, so exactly. last, last question. Okay. What are you reading right now? What, what should people listening to the show? Thousands of people are listening. Thousands? Or thousands of people are listening. What, what would you tell them to listen to? Is it one person listening a thousand times? <laughs> no, we have pretty good stats. <laughs> at, at the height, we, we were up there, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, um, I read a bunch of things at once. Um, right now, I'm working on... Um, what could hopefully be a potential project on Friedrich Gogarten. So I'm reading just about anything I can get my hands on by him. He's one of the early 20th century um, Protestant German theologians, my favorite era in all of theological history. <laughs> um, we're talking contemporary of Bart and Boltmann. Um, you've got, you know, Gulbitzer, I think is um, a layer that sort of, um, like the younger generation of this group of guys. Golgarten is, uh, is one of the um, uh, founding minds behind the dialectical school of theology mm -hmm. that sort of exists for about a decade. I believe it's about a decade. I know it ends in about 1933. Um, he's, he's an interesting character from what I understand so far. Um, he spends about three months supporting yay, um, the Nazi party. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I didn't yeah, realize it's that. Sort of, yeah. It's, 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 it's a smaller case. Okay, see, now I'm used to dealing with theologians with sort of massive blemishes. Mm -hmm. um, and Luther has a big one and it's called major anti-Semitism. Oh yeah. Um, sure. Gilgarten sort of for about three months spends some time supporting um, the concept of the Volk, but then he winds up getting a little bit disturbed and walks away and winds up signing a declaration alongside. I know it's Boltmann. And I think I also want to say maybe Althaus, but my understanding of Othaus was that he was sort of um, a Nazi theologian that sort of stayed with it or wound up going silent rather than speaking out against yeah, it. Yeah, that's always been um, my understanding. Right. Yeah. And so, but, uh, so anyway, so there's that little blemish and I'm like, oh, that's small. That's just three months sort of dallying with the Nazi party. It's not like a whole later life, you know, hatred of a group of people. That's what Luther gives us. Um, so I have to work through that in this, in this, um, in this thing that I'm working on right now, I'm like, yeah, okay. So now let's address the fact that he sort of promotes the Nazi party for about three months. This will be fun, hmm. um, but I like a challenge. So I read a lot of his stuff. Um, I'm also reading a lot with world religions, um, as well as a host of other politically oriented books uh usually a little more radical on the spectrum there like like modern um, politics or the uh well it, you know theology and politics mostly okay. um but anything that's sort of um well i'm also reading like das kapital right but not in the german yeah. i just like saying okay. it in yeah. german it sounds cooler than capital <laughs> right. <laughs> right um I just you know it's like you know like uh like instead of saying jaguar you just say jaguar jaguar um, yeah. <laughs> jaguar so, so would you say um, that uh would you say that dialectical theology is something that you're really attracted to because of that yes Okay. Yes. Well, it's part of the reason why I sort of wanted to get my kind of hands on a dialectical theologian that didn't have hands on them already. Wow, yeah. that sounds that sounds really bad. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's a difficult field. <laughs> um, so with dialectical theology coming to the table in mo in our in our current era in response to our social and political environment of uh, 21st century evangelical uh Christian America, um, it's got it's got things to say directly to it. But the problem is, is that in that discussion, 
um, you have right now, you have the voices of Karl Barth and um, Rudolf Bultmann mm-hmm. um, predominantly. And the one of the voices that's missing is one of the um, minds behind the original dialectical school of theology, which I mentioned. So Friedrich Gogarten, and what he brings to the table is sort of a, um, is actually, he's the Luther scholar of the bunch. And he adheres very closely to Luther's um, uh, law gospel distinction. Mm. And he um, almost, I would say painfully so. Um, and he is, um, he, he sort of work, he's working out of the Luther Renaissance. He's working law and gospel into this dialogue of dialectical theology. Um, and so I'm fascinated by how he's doing that and why he's doing it. So he's got all those markers that sort of um, caught my eye in terms of if I'm going to talk about, if I'm fascinated with dialectical theology, I want to understand it from, an his, from a historical point of view. Um, I'm also obsessed with Luther. So that, that almost naturally gravitated me towards, um, if that's the right way to say that, that attracted me to Friedrich Gogarten because yeah, he is yeah. the Luther scholar of a bunch. That's really um, interesting. Does he have a, a specific work or, or paper that, that you would suggest people uh, pick up first? Or do you no. have like a favorite? <laughs> <laughs> Just hop right in. Um, he, um, well, he's, 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 he's difficult. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I've read one book on him. I read a few other sources with him. Um, and I am, um, doing some, I'm working through some other, I have some German exposure. I'm not at a point yet where I'd be like, you know, what's really great. This right here. Yeah. Um, Just maybe, go, go, learn, go learn German and hop in with this paper and it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, I'm hoping that at some point I might have something to um, offer. Offer. Um, well, in terms it sounds like it sounds like you're working on a project. But um, yeah, again, Mariana, uh, she spent a year uh, in, in Germany on a Fulbright and she's, oh. um, yeah, she, she's, a, you know, loves German and speaks uh, fluently and all that stuff. So she always makes fun of me when I try to study anything theologically that has to do with German or Luther or uh, you know, any Bart or, or Boltman. Uh, yeah. She's like, oh, oh, you're reading that in, in the English. So, okay, well, you know, I, I, I could read that in German. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm like, I took theological German. I, I, I can sort of piece together the, you know, the last three syllables of this huge word. Right, um, right, yeah. Like Google Translate, just-, yeah, just like, exactly. Right? It's okay, we all do it, we all do it. Right, right. Well, cool. Um, and then uh, just, just for pleasure, what, what are you reading? Um, I am reading, well, I'm, more, I'm, I'm almost done with the fourth volume of the Harry Potter's, po- Harry Potty, I always say that. Harry, Harry Potter. Potter <laughs> <laughs> you know? I can't help it. I have just, my, my mouth doesn't work sometimes. Um, uh, uh, I'm working through, I'm almost done with volume four. I'm actually, I really, really enjoy it. Um, and then something else I just picked up today. Um, it's called The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil by George Saunders. And huh. it's an allegory and it's fascinating. Um, I'm only just a little bit in, so I can't really necessarily engage it at a, um, level that I would like to in terms of explaining it, but it's definitely political and radical in nature and is a commentary on, um, certain political structures in our environment, in our, in our country. And, um, it's short and my, my, um, partner, um, he bought it and because he's in a book club and he Uh just said, you know, I think you'd really like this. And I was like, 
what is it about? And he was like, politics. And I said, <laughs> he said, yep. And I said, I like it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I'm reading that and I'm reading the Harry Potter series. And then I read whatever um, articles I find online. Um, and so that's about it. I read about four or five things at once. Um, I think right now I'm a little bit, I'm at closer to like 10 or yeah. um, including my, my class preparation material as well, which is um, a host of books. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're having to teach as well. But yeah, I, I do the same thing. And that's the main reason I have a Kindle, just so I can sort of, uh, uh, I forgot, I, I had a term for it at one time where you're reading like six books at one time. Um, yeah. You know, be kind of kind of like grazing, which is a terrible way to read, if you think about it. But, um, you know, sometimes you want to read a sci-fi novel, sometimes you want to read gold sir or sometimes yeah. right flip back right. and forth it's okay. right and like when you're like when you're like like for me this book that i have right now the the brief and frightening reign of phil is little it's small i can throw it in my purse and then when i'm out and about doing like doctor's appointments or just like sitting somewhere for a few minutes it's one of those books you can pick up read a couple of pages and not necessarily have to dive deep down and invest I'm not going to do that with like black letter German, right? I'm, I'm not <laughs> carrying that book with me. Um, um, you know, I, so I'm, it's, it's just one of those things where I feel like books lend themselves to different environments. And so those books tend to stay in that environment for me. So tonight yeah. I was reading this very book while I was waiting for parents to show up in my classroom for um, parent orientation night, parent orientation night. And so it was perfect because I could pick it up, read for three minutes and put it down and do my teaching, sit back down, pick it up again. That's it, great. There's not a lot of emotional or intellectual investment with other things that I couldn't do that with, or that would be frustrating. So yeah, books have it, times it, and places. Exactly. You, you pick up Twitter and, and you look at Twitter for three minutes in between parent meetings and uh, you, you're just emotionally exhausted after looking at Twitter <laughs> for, for two minutes. <laughs> right. So. I I, confession, I haven't been, I've only been sending pictures to Twitter for the past like four or five days. I actually haven't been in the Twitterverse for four or five days. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I just can't right now. I, I know, just, I know. I'm the same way. It, it's exhausting. It is. I just get angry or I just get sad or I just get like o overload and I just have to, sometimes I have to draw back and so I can jump in anew. Well, we'll have to talk about your experiment that you did last year. Um, yes with your with your twitter people in the next show but if, if yeah. people want to know more about lauren larkin the reverend lauren larkin uh maybe twitter or your your website like what yeah definitely good, twitter, good place twitter's good i'm on a you know just a little bit of a twitter um diet right now um but i will be back i i promise um but yes and then my website too which is just lauren re larkin.com pretty easy um facebook is not a place to try to find me and instagram is not a place to find me and snapchat is beyond my pay grade i use it just for <laughs> selfies predominantly predominantly it's just about me i'm so vain uh, <laughs> yeah ears make me look amazing you're basic <laughs> basic <laughs> all right well great well thank you for uh for hanging out and thank you for your your thoughts especially on the genesis stuff i, I was hoping uh i wasn't gonna sort of throw that at you and and uh you say like what it, why but I, I had a feeling that that would be a, a good passage for you to oh yeah i I, I loved it as soon as you started reading it i was like yes out of all the scripture um, well, thank you so much for having me on as it, as it is, has been and is and will be. It's an honor. Yeah, we'll have you back on soon. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. We'll have Lauren back on the show soon. She's a fantastic, uh, fantastic guest and always has amazing viewpoints and, and uh, points of interest. So uh, next week, we're going to have another great guest, another great co-host, and you'll find out more about that. If you're subscribed, again, go to thinkingreligion.net and subscribe to us however you listen to your podcast, Evercast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in there's so many of these things i know but uh whatever your your poison is pick it and uh just look for thinking religion we're on everything from spotify to uh google podcast that's the thing now so anyway uh have a great week and we'll talk to you next week when i'm 40 <laughs>